I, I never quite, I, I, you know, with, with apologies to some of my colleagues who probably have done this, I never quite got that set, take the class out of the degree and set in a circle stuff, uh, even on a sunny day. General chemistry doesn't work very well that way anyway. Um, so let's uh, we'll get started. We're here for our uh, a session on how to manage the tenure track, uh, the tenure and promotion track. Uh, I'm Nick Snow from Chemistry and Biochemistry. I'd like to introduce Mary Ann Lloyd from Psychology, and she's about to cross the word associate off. I took it off and it was like 
Terrific. And actually, if you want to know what's really going on in the field of higher education, check out Professor Kelchin's blog posts and all of the stuff that he writes. That's that's insight on what's really going on out there. Please. Yeah, I'm Terence Till, political science Thank you. Please. Brian Meadows, College of Education, first year assistant professor. So what happened here? Marty told me he was going to twist all your arms to come here. Marty Finkelstein tells me he's twisting all your arms to come here. And where's he? Uh, he's coming. He is coming. Yeah, he okay. promised. Okay, yeah, I know he promised. But I've known Marty for a lot of years, too. So. <laughs> Please. Uh, very cool. English and uh, director of Soon to have, she says, she has one of the best jobs in the world you can have in higher education right now as department chair. She's soon to have another one of the best jobs, which is ex-department chair. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I'm Melissa Martini. I'm the graduate assistant for the Center for Faculty Development. So I'm a student, not a professor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen up. Hope we don't scare you away from being a professor. Please. I'm Suzanne Valkar. I'm an assistant professor in biology. I'm Jerry Bonapini, an assistant professor of chemistry, biochemistry. I'm a writer in the past, an assistant professor of diplomacy and international relations, and I also run the uh, Center for UN and Global Governance Studies. Thank you. Front table, best for last. I'm Sarah Adams, an assistant professor of English. Matthew Preston, assistant professor of journalism. Well, thank you all. I think one of the great things we have here is we've got folks from all over campus. And that is, uh, one, but it's also, I think, one of the, what I found in 23 years of being here is one of the best parts of being in a relatively small campus is that we do get to interact and work together across all kinds of, uh, of, of disciplines. Tony and I met as university teaching fellows over 20 years ago, and I don't think you would ever thought too much of a finance guy and a chemistry guy coming together at random, and we, we did a talk together at, yes, at, at, a, at a professional conference of what used to be, uh, of a, and I think about the funk organization called the American Association of Higher Education. You think it's great? Yes. And, and, gave it, and you would not expect that of a finance guy in a chemistry. So let's see what we'll talk about today. And I love this first question to start with, and I think this is a, you know, tenure, and, I, and I'll bet Professor Kelsen and when Marty get, Finkelstein gets here, he'll have some comments about this. Why tenure? Actually, here's another kind of corollary question about tenure. Is tenure a little bit under attack today in American higher education? What do you think? Junior faculty, what do you think? Here you've got, I mean, you kind of got, you know, in a sense, you've grabbed the brass ring, you've got a tenure track position now. Is it, even with tenure being existing and all of the things in our faculty guys, is it safe? Safe enough for now. Until we get there, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, for the next five years, probably. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Senior folks, what do you think about the evolution of tenure since, uh, of the leading of tenure since you've been here? So this stuff is being recorded? <laughs> well, so I'm going to let you know how I feel. <laughs> and anyway, it that wonderful age of 65. I remember I mentioned this at a School of Business faculty meeting, oh, this is about four years ago, and some people told me, hey, speak for yourself. I said, we're an aging faculty. 
And my own belief is, as department chair, I have to move aside for the younger folks, okay, because they have the energy, the new ideas that I may not have. And so the fact that we don't have a mandatory retirement age of 65 just mm, it pinches me in the gut because I think at some point some of us have to say, your value, our value added isn't what it used to be, and maybe we need to step aside. That's a frank opinion. Yeah, interesting. It's a very frank opinion. And actually, it presents actually one of the interesting challenges. And I was hoping you know, our, our, our third speaker, the Dean of Arts and Sciences, and boy, when he gets here, we're going to embarrass him, um, if you remember. <laughs> but you know, one, it actually is one of the uh, interesting challenges that they, from the administrative point of view, and, and many of you know, my senior colleagues know that I've also, I've also served in a number of senior administrative roles on campus. And from the administrative point of view, that's actually one of the things that they think a little bit about when they're making a tenure decision. But it's not, back in the day, it was a decision that ended at age 65. Once you hit 65, mandatory retirement age, they could keep you on, but they didn't have to. Now that is all eliminated. And it, you know, it's generated in one college a number of years ago when I was associate provost. That aging faculty was a huge concern when that college was not, quite frankly, making the money it was supposed to make. And they had a very expensive, very aging time. And they had to figure out ways to get people that have no interest in getting, having their tenure bought out, bought out. How does that impact you now? One of the things that will, you know, the deans will talk about is that investment that, you know, the university is now not making perhaps a 30-year commitment. It might be a 40-year commitment or even a 50-year commitment to you having the right of employment, which is uh, granted by tenure. So it's a major commitment, from the university's point of view, a major commitment that they are making and part of why we take it so seriously. And as Marianne knows very well, too, you do, yeah. you know this, too, Nick, as department chair, whenever we are writing a letter of support for someone to be tenured, we have to be able to demonstrate that there is actually a strong need for that individual. So one could have, you know, let's say, a whole series of A-level publications. You could be a wonderful teacher, but if you can't demonstrate that that person is really needed, the decision by the provost's office might be a little different than what the department expects. So that's, uh, and that's another one of the pieces that we'll talk about as we go through, as we talk about the different steps in the process. One thing about tenure is there is no guarantee. And that's another thing about the process and about promotion. There, you know, there is no guaranteed promotion. Tenure and promotion are only granted by affirmative action of the Board of Regents. And uh, and uh, you know, there are various steps along the way where you can either deny yourself or you can be denied. And no matter how great your record is or whatever it is or you perceive it is or your reviewers think it is, that possibility, the possibility of denial always exists. And that's probably part of, I think, what makes it so stressful for, for everybody. Judith, please. Yeah, I, I'm going to go back to your original question of why. Mm -hmm. Please do. Here. Um, and, and I think from the standpoint of shared governance in the university, Well, 
And of course, one of the uh, you know, one of the great freedoms that you enjoy in tenure and being tenured, and then ultimately being promoted to full professor, is a, you know a lot of freedom now. To I'll paraphrase it very simply: to kind of do your thing. And as long as that thing is making a good contribution, mm -hmm. uh, you know I, I, I have you know, I, I have the freedom as a full professor now to be here doing what I can to assist you, rather than being in my biology and chemistry faculty, junior faculty know this very well, over in McNulty Hall, toiling away in my lab because I need to just keep cranking out papers all the time. And that is some of the wonderful, it's the wonderful piece of is that we have that freedom to do that. And, and, and the university, and, and universities, higher, the industry, higher education industry, I think expects us to kind of you know, branch out and, and, and do new things and, and try new things when we have tenure a lot more easily than when we don't have tenure and you know yeah there's there are going to be requirements yet yeah, I don't have to worry about what's in my departmental standards for tenure document anymore done, I was done with that before it even existed uh, so we don't have to think about those things what else what are, you know, what are some other some of the other good aspects of, of why we have a tenure system in the first place what are some of your things yes some of you had a chance to think about that some of my junior colleagues What's good about getting tenure? So much it comes back to what um, what Judy Lipton was just saying that you know you can do those shared governance functions without fear of you know repercussions or reprisals across the wrong person who controls your your career destiny. And of course, you can also choose research topics. You can choose to explore things in your class as long as you at least reasonably follow the catalog description. Um, you can potentially develop new courses and controversial topics. Um, you can ask questions. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, without uh, without worrying, you know, without worry, it's, it's a very uh, uh, it's a very freeing uh, thing. Another yeah. if we can take more risks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, greater rewards. Correct. And, and, and of course, the other thing, you know, you know, you know, return to risk. There's also not return to risk. <laughs> and you can, and actually, one of the things you can do, for instance, is you can uh, uh, you can afford to go off on a tangent that ends up being unproductive. That's okay. That's okay. Right. You know, you can you don't you don't have to worry that you you don't have to worry that the, you know the semester goes by and it's not as strong for some reason. You don't have to worry about it so much. And I think that's very important. Um, but again, additional comments on why. Yeah, you can step back and take the long view of things. And I think what's important, what I like about being post-tenure is uh, I like people. And so I want to spend time, like I want to have, use some of my time to help, you know, read things people are trying to get ready to submit or give advice about what committees are going to sit on. I'll sit on the crappy committees that take up a lot of time <laughs> and uh, mental energy yeah, uh, to make sure that other people, but with enjoyable people, many of them are in the room. Um, so I think those are the, the spaces where people are doing tenure right. So that's what ends up happening. I don't feel like I've worked any less hard. I've worked differently. And without that, you know, the, the level of anxiety drops. Well, actually, one of the things I think I've found over the years since I got tenure, uh, almost 20 years ago, I work harder. I think I'm probably even in some ways even putting in you know, you know, more hours. And maybe in some ways, because I do have that, uh, I do have that freedom and that lack of, of, of worries. You know, you know, work, you know, work most of the time just isn't work. 
Anyway, let's get a little bit into some of the uh, mechanics. So we'll talk a little bit about what the faculty guide tells us, and again, a couple of things I'll suggest to junior colleagues. Get to know the faculty guide really well. It's your friend. Now, what's in the faculty guide and, and knowing the faculty guide, and I'm actually going to suggest, especially here in the presence of, of, of Professor Kelton, who, who is a scholar of higher education, uh, be a student, and we've got some of our other higher education scholars here. I pick on Bob because he's because of his blog. Because he's always being quoted in the media. Uh, the, uh, be a well, I think one of the best ways to think about this is be a student not just of your discipline. I think it's important for all of us to be students of higher education. I've got my news feeds on the Chronicle inside higher ed and, and several others related to the grants and research business, which I also do, plus my disciplinary news feeds. I've got that pouring stuff into my inbox all the time. And almost every morning, I get that Chronicle feed. There's something in there that provides some insight that's probably useful to whatever it is I'm working on right now, uh, between that and inside higher ed and some of those. And I think that's one of the really important things to, you know, in our atmosphere. And then be a student of our faculty guide. Uh, and, and, and get to know that that's really one of the uh, you know, one of the tools that we have that helps us. And then we'll talk about some of these other things about departmental reviews and that sort of things and standards. And for the folks that are associate professors here, you know, this is the next thing. What do you do? And Mary Ann can provide some immediate insight to that. What do you do to become a full professor? So why don't we think about some of that stuff? Let's hit the next one. So here's where we are. This is our you know, straight out of Article 3.2 probationary appointments. Uh, some things about that. Most of us. Let me, uh, you know. There, there's some things about that. Probably the big thing uh, for you, make sure you have a copy of your appointment letter. And it's amazing how many folks come up and they're getting ready for tenure and they don't have even a copy of their appointment letter. It happens. Make sure you start, you know, start off with that. In a sense, your dossier can kind of begin with a copy of your appointment letter. And remind yourself, I think, each semester, each year, when you're thinking about annual evaluations or whatever your process is in the department, Remind yourself of what's in it. Um, again, you don't have to answer, but so, you know, if there are any folks in the room who, you know, were given one of those things where they credited some years at another place towards your probationary period, they do that sometimes. Personally, I'm not a fan of that. I was when I was associate provost. I tended to ask a lot of questions about those kinds of appointments because, you know, so this, this is an interesting statement. In the fact, probationary service shall not exceed seven years. So let's say, in the, and this is a student of higher education moment, let's say you get a letter and you've negotiated with the dean or the chair coming in that you're going to have two years because you taught at some great other institution, so they're going to give you two years of credit towards your tenure. Well, now instead of your probationary service not exceeding seven years, it, it's not exceeding five years. Now here's the rub. The faculty guide makes it very, very difficult because of this statement to extend that clock. Controversy happens to extend that clock. There are very few provisions in the guide that allow that clock to be extended, unless there, unless there's a really scary reason, major life events, that sort of thing. However, the guide does have provisions if you turn out to be a rocket scientist for going up early. So, in my own experience, I went up one year early. I was able to demonstrate actually that I had more papers than any assistant professor ever in my department after my after I'd been here four years. I ran my, you know, I ran my resume by appropriate folks that gave me advice to do it, and I was able to successfully go up one year early. It's possible to go up early if the case is strong enough, but it's almost impossible to extend the clock. 
that's one of the, it, it's, it's sort of one of the, and I know that's something the faculty senate has been discussing over the years, various, uh, but it, it's very, very tough to do that. So be careful, if you have one of those, just like go back and look at your appointment letter, if you have one of those things, it, it alters the timeline. And that's something that you'll want to have a very careful discussion with your dean and your department chair about. And, and be sure you do. So things about that, if it's going to be delayed uh, and, and that conversation happens, make sure your appointment letter should tell you what semester it is is your mandatory review. Make sure that's in writing in the letter. It should be. I think, again, all appointment letters approved by our provost office should have that. But check to be sure that you, know, you and the dean and the chair all understand that's what the date is. There has been confusion about this. And it, it drives rank and tenure committees, and, and it, will, it will drive you even more nuts if there's confusion. Because that, that will just it'll take your stress level from here to here if there's confusion about that. Um, the other thing I think we want to be careful about in your probationary appointments is these days, yeah, we had rules about annual evaluation back in the day when, when I was an assistant professor. Nobody followed them. I think I might have had two annual evaluations in my, in my five years uh, as an assistant professor. They just didn't do it. It was, it was just, you know, a lot of departments just blew it off. Today, there's so, you know, you know documentation, documentation, documentation is, is I think, a, is, is a key point. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Mary Ann, anything to add there from your point of view as a recent rank and tenure committee meeting on member on documentation? Yeah, I would just say to make sure that um, if you have credited years, that hopefully the language is clear about uh, the work that happened during those years. So I'd like to introduce Dean Peter Schumacher, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Welcome. <laughs> Grab a cup of coffee in the lines for me. No, I had four o'clock, so I apologize. That's okay. You've, uh, that, 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 we, uh, that's all right. We started without you, and we, uh, and we told dirty stories about you. Just Nick, actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Mary. Mary is making a really good point. Because if you, instead of getting, let's say you get credit for working somewhere else, um, you have to, I advise, get it in writing, make a crystal clear, capital letters, how many articles and what is expected of you while you're here. Because that has tripped up a number of people and it's, it's ended not well, always. But it's like they get it in writing and get it clear. You know, it's very nice. You think, oh, good, I got credit. So I find that, that one problematical. Again, I didn't want to ask or ask people to raise hands if you were in that situation, but it's something to think about as a student of higher education, yeah. and especially if you think about later on becoming a leader in higher education, this is one of the kinds of things that will come to you. Tell me, please. Colonel Mary's point, I've advised younger faculty who are coming in, and let's say you know, they have a forthcoming paper where they're getting their dissertation and it's Seton Hall's name on it. Or wait to publish it. Yes, Wait, exactly. Because if you publish it before you come here, it won't count. That's and that's actually what a lot of us will look at as we're flipping, as we're going through your dossier, looking at the, at, at the paper, especially those that are right around the time you were appointed. Yeah. Is Seton, is it, does it say Seton Hall on the byline, or does it say some previous institution? And again, we'll be then looking for if the previous institution papers in there. We're going to be looking for some explanation of why that other institution is listed on a paper that you're presenting to us for your promotion to. And it's, it's even more complex than that. Absolutely. Because what's gone on in the provost office over the last year is the issue of was that publication that comes out in October of the year of appointment 
um, was that the was that the grounds for the appointment, not for giving credit for promotion change, regardless of what's on uh, the applicant? What's the institution name on the paper? So what you really, really so, so an early point, and actually for the folks who are associate professors now, I think one good thing to do these days, and this is the kind of thing that you know, administrations and committees are just a lot tighter on this stuff than they used to be, is that kind of almost draw a line there for yourself. This is stuff I used to get the job here. This is stuff I've done since I've been here. And I'll look and, and draw, draw a line there. And keep the stuff that you use to get the job here off of your rank and tenure application. Likewise, when you come up for, uh, as, a, as an associate profession, you're looking to go for full, they need to be, you know, think about the line between what am I used to get my promotion to associate versus what I'm using now to go up for full. Because they're going to, the committees and the administrator will look for that line. It's a tough problem. Do you mind if I add something? Peter, please. Yeah, please. I have to my cup of coffee. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I don't know if anyone has said this yet, but I, I think when you prepare a tenure application or promotion application, you don't want to put anything in there that makes people start asking questions and digging deeper. So for the example that, that Nick was just talking about, if you have a publication that you probably, maybe it's marginal for your application, you probably shouldn't include it from before. You don't want to put that on there because then people will start looking more closely at everything. They think you're trying to play the angles. And so I think to sort of maximize uh, transparency is a way to gain people's trust when reading the application. And once people start digging, you never know what will be perceived to be found uh, in the process. So to be as transparent as possible. The other thing, I, I, when I did my own tenure application, when there were articles that overlapped with books, that overlapped with presentations, I cross-referenced them. I said, this, this is the presentation that I gave here. You know, this percentage of the book contained materials from my, my articles. And so um, that way you don't have people thinking that maybe you're trying to slip something by them. And just from like a psychological perspective, we, we'll get into probably nitty gritty of the application, but I feel like that's what anyone has to leave early. They're like, okay, right? Like, the family guy tonight, what should I write in that thing that everyone's reading? Like, I think, right, being just super clear and honest, because I had a paper that was, I forget, like under review or in press, but then I got the proof and did some work. So I just wrote all that in my, when I did my packet. And Similarly, if I didn't put something in when I went up for full, I said, you know, this this was incorrect, so I used it. Didn't use it this time. I think that um, so, so we make things easy as easy as you can. Because remember, the committee is reading a bunch of these, especially at the university level, right? They're reading from all across the university, and they have a lot of work to do. So the, the familiarity breeds liking. So you want people to like you as they're reading your application. Um, I think that's an important. And in the grants business, uh, we, we say make it easy for the reviewers to say yes. So the yeah. other, you know, other simple things, you know, no typos, no, you know, you know do it right. You, you have to remind people. I've had, I literally once voted no on a candidate because, oh, they had great stuff, but they wrote the application form in pencil. You've got to be kidding me. Mary, please. Um, I just wanted to point out that one of the, one of the many glitches in the faculty guide have to do with the year in which you're actually coming up for promotion and tenure. Um, in that the way the language of the guide reads now, that year, so say you're coming up in this, this fall, right? Mm -hmm. So that year doesn't actually count for anything for your subsequent promotion the way it's set up. 
So we are now making changes to the faculty guide that clarify that language so that anything after October 1 of that year, whether it's the courses you're teaching, the publications, your service, do then count for your next promotion. Uh, because this has been an issue um, for, for a few promotions over the last few years, especially if you're coming up very close. If, you, if it's, you know, you're waiting six, seven years, it's not a big deal. But if you decide you want to come up in that four-year span for the next promotion, that year is really important. So anyway, you should know that the guide is being updated and it should be out by this fall, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And the provost is in support. Yes, absolutely. So, and so it is going to let people yes. Yes. apply a year earlier than they've been able to apply from yes. right yes. now. That year will now count. Well done, faculty well, senator. There you go. And one thing to be aware of, <laughs> and, and, and a couple of things. Actually, one thing you can do, and, and this might be good homework uh, for everybody, um, right now, if you haven't already, uh, you know, go to, after this session, go to the provost's office, download a copy of the forms. They, I don't think they're going to change. They change much from year to year, so you can download the forms. Change the last couple of years. They're not changing hugely. <laughs> download the basic forms because what you'll find is three basic. You know, you'll find four basic, you know, sections: teaching, service, stop, research, and research in progress. Where you want to think about that line on your form for this upcoming uh, promotion application is what is research completed versus what is research in progress. Because research in, you know, in the research in progress is in progress, and there, you know, there'll be a line there between what's completed and what's in progress. And be, you know, be a little careful. You know, you know, things that are in progress when you come up for promotion the first time, they can be talked about the second time because they're in progress. Where people have gotten into trouble is something that's listed as was actually listed as completed the first time, and then it shows up on the application the second time for the promotion in full. You'll get nailed for that because they go back and they look at your original application for associate, and and, and that's where some people have gotten uh, have gotten gotten hit for that. So be careful with that uh, a little bit in terms of the uh, in terms of the research. Not really what's been said. I don't really touched on this, but. The other thing that I would say is, is really important to keep in mind as you prepare your application is that um, as the applicant, you know, the burden for demonstrating that you meet or exceed the standards is on, is, is on you. So the question is not whether, the question is not exactly whether you've <coughs> tenure, the question is whether you've demonstrated in your application that you've done so. And so it's a reason to be very attentive to the application as such because it was organized very closely, and there may be facts that you believe should be in evidence that are not in the application. They're not going to help you that much if they're not there. So you need to, to consider the application uh, as it's going to be what people refer to as they ask you questions, as they make decisions. Um, and it's not that the university has to demonstrate that you do not meet those standards, that you have to make an affirmative case for yourself. It's like a cumulative take-home exam. Yep. Students may very well know things. Yeah. If they don't write them down, we don't usually give them credit. So a couple of things, just a few quick comments on, uh, and I, I, I shouldn't have called this non-renewal, but one of the things that will happen is as, each, as you go through each year of your, of, a of your probationary faculty period, there will be annual reviews, there will be times when you can be renewed or not, or, or not renewed. The main thing you want to make sure as, as you're progressing, as you're being renewed, is that you have that documentation of the letter that the evaluation that was done. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, 
Yeah. Well, again, the faculty guide language, as I recall it from a couple of years ago when I wrote these slides, kind of talked more about non renewable than renewable. It is not renewable. Yeah, so that if yeah. you're going to renew someone, yeah. you don't have to be frantic about the March 1st. Yeah. In the first year. yeah. So what will happen is basically, and, and, and so the way, the, the way this works in the guide, for instance, after your, you know, during your first year, if they haven't told you by March 1st that you're, that you're out, you're in. In your second year, if they haven't told you by December 15th that you're out, you're in for the next year, and then the third, and that third and subsequent years, it's by September 1st of the previous year, you're you're good for the next year. What that brings up, though, and this is you know something that was initiated a few years ago by the provost. One critical point, and are there any folks in the room that are a little bit? Some, there are some folks that are getting ready to apply pretty soon, right? Yeah. So you guys had a third year review, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that third year review was pretty extensive, wasn't it? Is it third year? Third year? Is it not particularly? Not okay. We're gonna do it like you guys. Yeah. So they. Uh, I, I think we're moving more in that direction, yeah. but it, it's still small becoming a research. Yes, that's that's one of the that's one of the steps is getting better. About but keep a particular eye. You know, most most departments in arts and sciences now at least are doing a pretty extensive third year review, yeah. and you know, almost like a almost like a rehearsal for for that's how we do it in chemistry. It's almost like a, a dress rehearsal for a rank and tenure application in a few years so that we can identify if there are any deficiencies that, hey, you're still good enough to get renewed, but this might be a concern in a couple of years, we can identify them early on. So especially in that third year, after you, as, you finish, as you finish your third year and head into your fourth year, if the process isn't that strong, that's kind of where I would pay particular attention to my own progress. Unless you have a department like mine that will beat you about the head if you're not making progress on that, because that's also where you have an opportunity when you think about adding, if you kind of think about walking the timeline back, at the third year point, you get renewed, and even if there's some deficiencies, you have time to correct any concerns that might be raised. When you get to the fourth or fifth years, and there's really not a lot of time to correct anything. So really, you know, you almost, I would almost suggest asking for a really thorough review if you're working the third year if they don't do that. I was going to say the same thing and, and talk to your chair at the very beginning of the third year. Remind the chair about the third year review. Yeah. He or she should know, but you'd be surprised what happens. And I would even say for the earlier review, students is right that there's not as much of a panic if you're being renewed. And still, the earlier you get feedback, at any point, the better. And so, I mean, I would, I would encourage you know, your chairs to review you as early as possible each academic year, and then for the third year review, you know, really, you know, bird dogging. And one of the things I also loved is, as a, as a committee member, one of the things I love to read from that process is, yeah, you, you love to read applications from people that just sailed right through and were perfect like Mary Ann. Uh, and because uh, I think I did read yours at some point, but, uh, but the thing is, and, but the other thing is, you also love to see that story where, yeah, and, and it does happen. At some point, as an assistant professor, you're going to struggle with something. You know, either life is going to get in the way, or it's going to be a rough semester, or a class, a class or two are not going to click, something like that. Or student evaluations are going to come in kind of rough, something like that. And what, one of the things I loved reading as a committee member was reading, hey, I had some difficulty here in the second year. Here's what we did. We got it, you know, we got it fixed. And now I'm cruising. And, and to hear that, to hear that story of seeing, of, you know, that to, to kind of weave that also into a story of professional development is one of the things you really can get a, a, a good narrative out of the evaluations. 
And it's one of the things that at least as an individual committee member, I love to, to, to see if that kind of a story was evident. Because I know at, at some point everybody does have a struggle or a difficulty. Yeah. Right, you want to you pull everyone, right? Highly yeah. fluent. The other thing that's nice about this, even if your department doesn't do a full one, I would encourage you to try to start writing a mock application uh, because you'll be really glad the summer of your fifth year that you have something to start from. I mean, maybe others in the room, a blank piece of paper is like their dream. <laughs> Not my dream. I like to have something to go on. So uh, it was really helpful to have that. My department does, you know, they make you fill out the tenure application. That's mine. So it, it gave me a... Yeah, well, that's, that's actually what I made people do. I never had to do. I didn't yeah. have to do that until I came up. And, and then what Luke and I did since yeah. we're fifth year, we mm -hmm. just put together a basically a draft of the statement for mm -hmm. maybe more through the spring to get yeah. some feedback. Right. Yeah. So you can get some and, and you get some uh, get some early feedback on, on what you can polish up. And that's what you did is actually what I would recommend everybody try in about the third year, just in case there's something that pops up that's major that takes a little bit longer to uh, uh, to take care of. And it might give you a chance, you're in such a, a space of trying to, you know, get, I mean, we can be honest, right? It's the pubs are taking up a lot of the variance in your tenure decision. So you can get really sort of caught up in that. And, and through that process of writing, you might start to see connections in your projects you might not have otherwise seen. It can be helpful for your own scholarship work. And we don't necessarily encourage that kind of high-level thinking if, if you don't do that. So I think that can be another reason it's useful. If your department, for some reason, refuses to read that, I would be happy to read it and tell you sort of here's what I'm thinking about you, right? That's the, those are those are full privilege right there. But I I would be happy to read about what makes you exciting. All right, please. I was going to say I think getting the advice that you're getting about what happens if your department is not doing a formal regular review is really important because part of this is just not in the faculty guide. Yeah. We do not do it in English. Yeah. We don't do things that are not in the faculty guide because we don't want to just just by by fiat say, oh, by the way, this is now a requirement that the university expects of you. We do take the whole thing very seriously. Tara's here, she knows. We are on top of them all the time and all that. And I think this is also really good advice. But I also don't want people to go back to their department yeah. and say, oh, you're supposed to be doing this. It's tricky. But I do think all those other bits of advice, like do your statement, start getting things done, hand it around to people. I would think the same offer. Anything you ever want to show me, I was when it comes to an annual review, um, I mean, Mary, your point about third year review is well taken. Um, we look at the end of the year to see whether you received all of them, but and, and that'll get us keep us in compliance. That's not what you need. You need that information in December or January, not when we get around to auditing our books in June. So, um, you know, whether it's the third year review or just the annual review, being proactive, I think is really important. I was just going to, if I may say something, third, give Mary and and Mary's. I'll be glad to help anybody on their tenure promotions reviews. I may not be able to read them, but I can certainly hear them. <laughs> so I always sit down and read them to me because I tell people you know, reconstruct the tenure review from top to bottom because they just weren't using the right language. They weren't selling themselves particularly well. They sounded risky. You got uh, uh, way too many risks. Yes. So see if I can, you can use me as a diversifier to reduce those risks. <laughs> Because I've done this at two different universities. And so, and so part of why the third year review, to me, is that, that point in time. And actually, when I think about that, if you've got those years toward tenure, I'm really thinking about the, if you apply the tenure, it's almost the third year back from whatever your tenure application, your mandatory date is. In a typical schedule, that's the third year out from when you apply, from when you arrive here. If you're on one of those compressed schedules, it may be sooner. 
that third year back because what happens? You've got the fourth year, okay, that's a normal year, you can start doing things. Once you hit September 5th, September 1st of that fifth year, and in fact, the other, another one of the quirks of the guide is that's kind of a point of no return. Because that means you will be appointed your sixth year, therefore you will be here on October 1st of your sixth year, therefore you have the right to apply for tenure. Once you show up here on September 1st of your fifth year, you have earned the right to apply for tenure on October 1st of your sixth year. So I kind of look at that, there's a, sort of, a certain kind of point of no return in that there's, a, there's no way, to, at that point it kind of becomes the way there's no way to stop the process except by you if there's going to be problems. You can stop the process, of course, by leaving or by failing to apply for tenure on your mandatory date, but the process itself cannot recommend a stop of the process at that point once you, once you hit that. So I kind of call that, it's a bit of a court. That's why to me that third year is so important because if there are issues, we want to get the, I feel like you, know, you want to have a good shot of getting those wrapped up before you hit the point of no return, which is you know, you're either going up or you're, you're either going to apply for tenure or you're going to quit as of October 1st of that sixth year. And, and we don't, we, we'd rather have it apply for tenure and be successful. We'd all rather have that. So that's why that, and really it's that counting back, you know, the third year back. So if you've got two years toward tenure, you're really going to do this in your first or second year. So that says, come in here if you've got two years toward tenure, that'd be a rocket scientist from day one. Yeah. That's kind of what that, that's why I worry about that pressure sometimes. Please, Marianne, thank you for it. So again, we talked about this a little bit of business where I did want to invite leaders to chime in a little bit. Again, it's you know, not guaranteed, requires the action by the Board of Regents. We've talked about this right at university employment until retirement, which is an off-loading day. And Peter, maybe you might want to add a few comments about the university's investment. So we've talked about this, um, we've yeah. talked about it before, and, I, and I've talked about it with the college rank and tenure committee, I think. I, mean, I remember being in the position of going up for tenure, and it was sort of it was the holy grail that I wanted to grab onto and, uh, and take possession of. From from the university's point of view, um, I think it's worthwhile to think about the investment that the university makes in you when the university grants you tenure. So, you know, if you're going to be there for another 30 years, that's many millions of dollars that the university is committing to you down the road. And so part of what you need to think about when you're applying for tenure, there, there are all of the specific guidelines, but it's also making the case that it's worth investing in, in you as an independent scholar, according you virtual job security and academic freedom um, in order to do that. And so the implicit test is not written down anywhere. The implicit test always is, should they should the university tenure you, or should the university go back to the drawing board and see if you know the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And so you, you really effectively do have to meet that standard. The guidelines are there to tell you roughly where that standard is in different disciplines. And then you have a full professor. Um, I think there's something similar going on. I don't know if we're going to talk about that. No, we're really we can uh, talk about it now. We've got a bunch of associates. It's, so so I mean, the question for the University of Hall that's trying to you know, move ahead, move up uh, in terms of its uh, scholarly profile and in terms of um, those kinds of things is whether you now represent um, a, a leader in your field um, that brings renown to the university, and also whether you can be a leader on campus, whether you are going to act in a way uh, that transforms the university for the better. And so I think those are really, I mean, you have to be a good teacher as well, but I think really the, the, the biggest tests 
when you're looking at promotion of full professor are, you know, have you established yourself as someone who brings renown to the university, and are you going to be a leader in the university who helps the university move forward? Otherwise, um, you know, the university may decide that you're doing perfectly fine as an associate professor. <laughs> you still got your job, but but the, 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 the university has an interest in your um, becoming something else, and that's why they they grant this. So it's not a little bit hard to say, but when you think about it, and, 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 and in, in the experience of my years here, the bar is raised significantly. Some of you have been in my in my presentations about grants and research, and one of the things I point out. 20 years or so ago, in 1997, in the Scopus database, Seton Hall University listed 65 publications. In 2017, Seton Hall listed 220 publications. So when you think about that, in Scopus, abstract sciences, social sciences, business, uh, you know, you know, some, you know, health sciences, some humanities, and all that. So then, you know, there, it's, it's getting big. But when you think about that, if that's a representative sample, in 20 years, that's about a three to four times increase in the university's publication rate. So without the faculty increasing. Without the faculty increasing, the faculty increasing significantly yeah. in size. So that it, what that says is that, you know, and, and, and hopefully this will come naturally to you. I would suggest, I, I mentioned I was an early tenure applicant back in 1998-1999. I would posit that I would not have been a successful early tenure applicant 15 years later. And I would probably have been not as, I won't say I was the, completely bump-free full professor applicant, but again, with the same record, it would not have been what it was 15 years ago when I came up with full professor. So actually, you, the faculty, are actually raising that bar by your own work. And, and each time somebody comes up who is a little better than the last person, we'll talk about departmental rank and tenure standards in a moment, they're actually effectively raising that bar. And that's, and that's also something to, uh, to keep in mind. But I think that's also why it's super important that those of us that have received tenure create space so that our untenured colleagues can achieve that level of scholarly productivity, yeah. right? Because there are, we have not increased the hours in the day fourfold, nor taken a one quarter teaching reduction down to a <laughs> one one level, right? So this, no. yeah. Yeah. Please, let's see what's on the next one. Nick, I'm just gonna add Please, to your me. point. I know when I came up for tenure, this is back in 1997, I had nine publications. And I can say this openly and honestly to everyone. I did not compete today with you know, two untenured faculty members who recently tenured in the Department of Finance. They have nine faculty, they have nine publications each, and they're all of higher quality. Yeah. Yeah. I look at some of my departmental colleagues. I might be able to touch them, but I would not have them better than that as I was in 1998. Yes, it's probably also important, and I think everyone knows this, but higher ed is under a certain, a certain amount of pressure, and that means you know, a lot of qualified, good people out there. And your, your burden is to show that, that you, you're the best um, that St. Paul can expect right now. Um, and that you're interested in the future, too, because I think we tend to look at uh, tenure promotion as, as a retrospective. That's what maybe you did in the past, but really the past is just supposed to be a measure of what you're going to accomplish as you go forward. Um, and so being able to demonstrate that you didn't, you're not slowing down um, is really, really important. That's an interesting thing actually that we look for, especially for the folks who are associate professors and, and, and for the long term, for the, uh, uh, for the assistant professors, is think about you know, one of the things uh, you know, and, I, and I think Marianne would echo this, is we tend to look a little bit at trajectory. So you start a little bit of a curve going upward as an assistant professor, 
we expect that at the Oakland Associates at full to kind of be continue going up on some sort of an exponential curve rather than a linear curve. And that, yeah, the work you do as an associate should be better than, better, demonstrably better than the work you did as, as an assistant to get tenure. You know, either more of it, more, in, in the case of my field, more pubs and more money. Uh, in the case of chemistry, but you know, but it needs to be, it needs to be there, and that's the first thing the chemistry department and the tenure committee will look at for the full professor applicants. Did they publish more in a shorter time, and did they bring in more money in a shorter time than they did as an assistant professor? The first thing they'll look at. It's much more difficult. Let's talk a little bit about standards, and I want to kind of skip. We all know about teaching scholarship and service. I'm going to skip to this last one right away. About 15 years ago, this is kind of what it says, in the, or at least said in the guide about. You know, departments and colleges may establish additional criteria. I think that language has been changed. But 15 years ago, you know, this was the language. The provost about 15 years ago directed it. <laughs> directed departments to start creating departmental standards documents. And to my knowledge, and Judith, correct me, I think all departments have them. Judith, Mary, all departments eventually did do standards documents yeah. of some sort. Yeah. So one thing is you were supposed to have been given a copy of this when you started work here. So if you do not have this, go straight back to your department chair and get it and ask for it and say, where's our standards document? I was supposed to, and, and remind them you were supposed to get it when you started working here. Actually, really, it's supposed to be something that, you know, when you're in that serious discussion with the dean and the chair about coming here in the first place, they're supposed to talk about that and, and about those expectations ahead before you're even hired. And what I tell candidates who are interviewing for jobs is, you know, before you leave campus today, make sure that you ask for a copy of these guidelines because it's, it's, it's important to you as you make a decision about what how you want to spend your next six so, years so and, and here's actually what i have to say about those and this again is snow's opinion as one senior professor and committee member uh, you know maybe my business colleagues will back this up but in every uh everything that i've been involved in that has been involved whether it's here at seton hall in higher education or in other businesses where i've been involved in evaluating people for promotion the phrase in an evaluation that says they've met the standard is the kiss of death. Would my business colleague back me up on that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the things about those standards. Get those. My suggestion to you is whatever those standards say, it's also a little bit, uh, people that know me also know I like sports analogies. And you know the NFL, if you follow the NFL, you know they just changed the rules for what defines a catch. You'd think, you would think they would not need pages of rules to define what it means to catch a football. <laughs> but they have pages of they have pages of rules for what it meant to actually catch a football. They redefined what a catch is. My point of view on that was always, well, gee, if the ball never touches the ground at all, you've got pretty good evidence that it's a catch. Don't give them a judgment call. That's kind of how I feel about rank and tenure standards documents and departments. In fact, I used to, I didn't get a chance to print off my departments. I used to come in with a copy of my departments and rip it in half in front of everybody. Read that thing, get to know it, and then make a goal for yourself that you're going to blow it away so, so big that only a fool would dispute that you haven't exceeded the standards, would state that you have not exceeded the standards. That anybody stating otherwise that, that you're not great is just being a fool and is obviously foolish. So do get to know those, but get to the point where you don't, you know, try to make a goal for yourself to kind of get to the point where you don't even have to think about it. That is probably the, the best advice I can give you on that is just to try to do that. Because, and, you know, the, a corollary to that, 
do get to be familiar with your environment. The great thing about having some databases that we have access to here on a campus like Scopus and some of the others in a lot of our disciplines is even if you don't see their CVs and their annual reports every year, keep an eye on your department's annual report every year. It will tell you what everybody else is doing. So that you can then eyeball for yourself. Am I publishing the same as my, as my colleagues at my same level? Am I publishing along with my colleagues at the higher level? It's one of the best, again, one of the best demonstrations you can make as an assistant professor. I'm already publishing more than the associate or professors in the department. It's one of the best ways, it's one of the best things that you can, you know, that, that can be demonstrated. And that data is all available to you. But I would say that, but you know, but keep in mind that there's quantity, quality, yes. distinctions, right? So yes. I just, you know, before this, as, as someone that doesn't want to slow down, I was at a writing date with someone on sabbatical who's in the middle of writing a book, right? So that, you know, there's a lot more words in a book. Or I'm a cognitive psychologist. We typically can't publish a single experiment paper. My things have four or five experiments, whereas in other subfields of psychology, that would be five papers. So I think that, you know, part of your job when you're writing your application is to clearly demonstrate not just the standards of your discipline, but the standards of the type of research that you do. So that, you know, there's things like, not for everything, but right there are things like impact factors and citation rates. So all of that information, so I agree. But, you know, you can, with enough money, you can publish anything, right? <laughs> In an open access journal. So uh, I, I would say, right, don't, you know, and I'm not accusing my colleagues of publish a lot of doing that, but I'm saying that, you know, when you look, don't panic at first. Look at, uh, I would say, the construct validity yes. here. You want to make sure you have good construct yeah. validity. But you actually have much more ability, say, than I did to do that kind of deep dive yeah. on, what, um, on, on what, you're what you're doing versus the standards document that you have, which I also didn't yeah. have, and what you're doing versus your colleagues both here and in other places that are in a other schools that are in a similar position. You can really, you know, and, and that, that's perhaps, the, you know, to me, the best measure you can do for yourself of how you're doing. I, I agree, and I, and I think citation data, um, various kinds of indices of impact, all of that stuff belongs in the application because it's, it's more information that you're giving um, committees and the provost and the dean uh, to make decisions. I'll also say, you know, I don't know if I would go as far as ripping up chemistry. So. Well, no, it's dramatic, but I would say that many um, tenure committees at the college level and university level are are chosen in order to exercise judgment, and that means that you know the, the standards are there to guide them, but they're not there to constrain them. And so um, they, they're supposed to make tough decisions. And a, a tenure committee that isn't capable of saying, well, the person published four publications, but those four publications are crap publications, <laughs> isn't doing its job. Yeah. Similarly, and it, it works both ways. I mean, it, it, it is, it's a judgmental exercise. And uh, that's why I think uh, Dr. Snow's advice that you want to, you know, well exceed the standards that are there is important because that removes any possible doubt. Um, I'm just going to add that very point. What yeah. we encourage the Department of Finance is to get outside assessments of what's research and teaching. We'll come to that a little bit too. Um, yeah, you know, that's good. We're good. We're, uh, we're good there because some of us not so new and coming anymore. But right. so, anyway, so a couple of actually a, a couple of other comments about that because one of the things that you can you can you can very rapidly also as you're starting to do things like citation analysis and that sort of thing. You know, you know, devolve yourself into a morass of crazy statistics and things like that also about publications. But you can also make say anything. 
Um, one thing that is also very helpful to reviewers, and I know we spend a lot of time on this in chemistry, because chem chemistry actually has, sort of has multiple challenges for tenure one. We're one of a relatively few PhD granting departments, so we're one of two in the College of Arts and Sciences. So even to our own college rank and tenure committee, we have to do a little bit of explaining about sort of how we work, which is perhaps a little different than how most of their, the other departments in the college work. Um, we tend to do a little bit of explaining about things like almost, you know, almost every paper I've published has multiple authors. I think I might have one or a couple of book chapters with only me as the author. Um, and it's something, again, that's, uh, you know, you'll want to make sure you have some explanation in there of what is the publishing tradition in your discipline. It's very helpful to us because we don't know, uh, we're, we're, we're good senior people with good judgment to find their way on the rank and tenure committees. But at the same time, we don't know the nuance of every discipline. So it's really helpful to, you know, in a preamble to your publication work, give us your list of publications, give us some explanation of how publication works in your discipline. That's a narrative on that that, uh, so that helps us. External review. That's interesting. And I've got a faculty sentence for you that I'm not sure even Judith knows, because I don't remember your dates on the Senate, but it sure goes back to when I was on it, which was a long time ago. Um, yeah, so, and I'll start, when I came up for tenure in 19, I sent my application in in 1998. It went through the college department fine, college committee fine, get to the university committee. And on January 15th of 1999, as you walk through the process, that's, the university committee has it. We get a request from the university committee. They want external reviews. And they are allowed to ask for that at that time, actually. They asked everybody. And it turned out the provost at the time decided he wanted external reviews. And he leaned on the university committee to ask for them in his place. And they did. So all of a sudden, there we are, most of the way through the process, they said external reviews. So there was no process for this. So what I did, I called, I, called up, I called up three of my friends and asked them if they could send a letter on my behalf, and they were more than happy to do so. It wasn't, I mean, hey, they didn't give us a process, so made up, my, made up their own process on the fly. Well, they actually didn't have the right to do that. It's, it's, again, a little bit of the... Faculty guidance yeah. we, we have incorporated language. Yeah. approved at this point. Yeah. Uh, the office on exactly how the external yeah. and, the, and, and the guide language... And the guide language at the time, those committees and actually at any level were allowed to go anywhere they wanted to get more information if they felt like it. They could ask for anything. And at that time, the university, and so bang, 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 politics, politics, politics. It's kind of a, it was one of the things that kind of got wrapped up when we did a salary study in 2007. It was kind of wrapped up in that, um, and still never a process until now. Thank you, faculty senate, faculty guide committee. Thank you for working on that. There's never been a formal process for collecting external reviews other than the knowledge that the university rank and tenure committee and the provost would expect them. So. There we were, they're, they're kind of where we were with external reviews. So every department was kind of all over the place with them. So I'm glad we'll have a formal process because external reviews are something, again, that really help us as committee members to say, 
You know, so I have to be confident, yes, especially with the scholarship, this person's scholarship, it's great, they're having an impact in the field and all of that sort of thing. And it's something that's longer to do to have a formal process. Right? So I'm really glad to hear that because we've been, you know, 15 years or so with no formal process, but the thing's being, actually almost 20 years now with no formal process, but the review's being expected. And in the Judith, if I'm correct, the external reviews are not required of the new language. It simply stipulates how they... How they you know, happen yeah. if you choose to do it. And it's not like Mace yeah. Snow calls up his friends yeah. and says, <laughs> you know, it's, it's directed or organized by the chair of the department. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. goes in at the same time the application yeah. goes in. You don't see the letters. Yeah. So, so to be clear, uh, I mean, the reviews are not required. External reviews are not required. What I would say, though, is returning to my point, you, know, you, you have a burden of proof to meet. And there are different ways of meeting that burden of proof. Um, you're not including letters is not in and of itself a reason not to grant you tenure or promotion. But you still have to meet that burden of proof, and that's one of the best ways to meet it, is the way I would put it. Yeah. I would say, as you said on the college committee, when I read a letter from someone that's not a collaborator that says, I'm at a PhD granting institution, and this would count for tenure where I am, somehow this person teaches a 3-3 load, I don't get it. I'm like, well, that's some compelling evidence, despite what my own opinion might be about you. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's not, I'm with Mary, right? It's not in a guide. But uh, it's the sort of thing that can really help you, because there can there can be a sense that your I mean your job we know that you are writing the letters to tell me how amazing you are right you're not if you're not bragging in your packet you're not doing it right so having someone else interested in bragging about you it's, it's helpful. Um, and of course, usually those processes I've read the details I have read the details of the recommendation arts and actually in arts and yeah. sciences there is a recommendation coming forth from the rank and tenure committee about that. But it's a pretty standard process. Typically what will happen is you'll give some number of names, like five or six, to the chair. The chair, using whatever process, my favorite process for that was a dartboard. I uh, would pick three of them. Because uh, I mean, I'm knowing better, I figured keep it simple. Uh, when I was chair, I would yeah, say, give me, you know, you know, give me some number of names, and I threw darts at three. And so I hit three of them, and those were the names we used. Kept it, you know, it couldn't be more transparent than that, and, and, less, and less agenda than that. So, uh, uh, and then since some subset of that, the chair will reach out to them with a copy of the materials and the, of, of typically your CV and your, app and your application, not the full dossier, and, and ask them to, uh, to write those letters in confidence. And then the chair will upload them into the system uh, at, the, at the appropriate time. And so that, I think, will be a good solid process. I'm glad we're doing that. Well, let's see, what did we talk about? Again, we talked about the bar going higher. Um, again, that is actually, the expectation even of research is a relatively new change to the faculty guide. It was when we switched the four, from the 4-4 four four to the 3-3 three three load in the guide, was when the language was changed from research optional to research expected. And I think we're seeing the second part of that being, we talked about this, the, uh, you know, the bar is ever going higher. We talked about standards documents. Uh, those were new and coming the first time I wrote these slides years ago, and I, but I think those are actually in chemistry. We're probably getting ready to review them again because we voted 15 years ago. So it's probably time, you know, if, you know, departments. I would suggest the departments to think about reviewing them because a lot of them are pretty dated today. Even uh, third-year review again. I don't think I can emphasize enough. That's a great, probably the best, one of the best points. Sort of midway through your probate, and when you think about that for associates. Let's say you've been promoted now for three years. That's a great time for yourself, Marianne, listen up to take stock of what you've done. 
And where am I on the track of promotion, potential promotion to full professors? Is it been good three years? What's, you know, how am I looking? Is a good time to do that? One of the things that does, where, where it does become a little problematical is, and you know, this is totally unwritten everywhere, but it, and it's anecdotal evidence, but it sure seems the longer that one is an associate professor, the tougher that promotion is to get. And you'll see that, you'll, you'll see that in the statistics, so even nationally, people going up to promotions. That uh, there's almost a sweet spot for going up, and I would say somewhere in the five to ten year range of being an associate professor, there's kind of a sweet spot there. Once you get out much further than that, it gets, you know, there, people start wondering about the multi-year publication gaps and things like that. But uh, you know, what were you doing in those six years where there's no publications? And it just becomes, it's almost like starting over going to that promotion. So associates, you know, that, you know, after three years or so, I think is also a good time to take stock of that and see where you're at. Um, quantitative measures is just going to get more and more and more. So I think we have to be ready for that. If, you know, if you can look up and figure out your H index in Google Scholar or something like that, those are good things to do. If you can figure out some sites and get some citation information, Rejection rates for things like that, that they not get citations or for yeah. a publisher, right? To know, you know, this press rejects 95% of proposals. That's an incredibly impressive yeah. statistic. And I can say, um, in some of the discursive disciplines, the quantitative measures don't work very well. Yeah. They're poor. The indexes are not very yeah. comprehensive, and so that's where uh, Marianne's suggestion of acceptance rates becomes important. And that's also a place where an external reviewer can help you and say, you know, this may not show up in Scopus, but this this article has been widely read and discussed within the field. And if that's someone whom you did not solicit, then that goes a long, long way. And so uh, depending upon your discipline, there are ways you have to tweak your strategy here and things like acceptance rate, um, being able to indicate that a university press is a particularly distinguished university press. Those kinds of things are really important. Angry bots on Twitter. Yep. That would be yep. good. <laughs> 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 your research is engaging. Yeah, the worst, the worst stay, the, the stay away from the hot peppers on rate professors. Yeah, yeah. Let's stay away from that. I don't think we're going to be, as a rank and tenure committee, I'm not interested in how many peppers you have on there uh, or not. Although, you, you know, internet searching yeah. can be helpful. Um, many of you may already Google yourselves, but. It's worthwhile, actually. It's worthwhile, but you, 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 what you'll find is sometimes you've decided in places that you didn't know. Yeah. And, and that can become an important thing. If, if, if a standard reference work is now cited in you, that's something you probably want to include yeah. in your application. So, so, so at the same time, please. Yeah. Recommendations set a Google alert for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a good example. Google Scholar alerts. Yeah. That will notify you when anything new cites you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea. I haven't done that. Of course, I don't have to worry about it these stage in my career. But the thing is, it gives you a little burst of you know, self. Well, actually, you know, it is. I've got my uh, my LinkedIn alerts and my and my research gate. I, I do have those, and, and and it is actually. I don't do a lot with research gate other than I'm in it and I have connections on it. But it is nice. It, it actually is kind of cool when that thing pops up and says you've got top stats this week. It's kind of it's kind of cool. But uh, yeah, actually, one of the things about that, and I think one of the places where I'll, I'll add a little bit of a caveat to all the stuff about quantitative things, one thing I do also do know about our rank and tenure committees and our administrators in general is that unlike R1, if you're an R1, this conversation about citations and data would be really simple. They would say, if your age index is not 15 or higher, you're not getting promoted. And that would pretty much be it. Here, 
we will take a look at that and actually apply some judgment to measures like that. So it's because of differences in disciplines, because of differences in citation rates, because of differences, you know, papers, papers that I published 20 years ago, thankfully are still getting cited and adding to my age index, where if you're just starting out, it's going to take a while before that builds up, even if you are very actively publishing. So there are, you know, there's a time lag before some of those measures come in. And I think that's one of the things we're still pretty good about here, is even though we like to see the quantitative measures, our committee members and our administrators will generally apply very thoughtful judgment. I want to share one quick thing before too many people go away. Um, I don't know if the project process has, has changed too much in the provost's office, but I did work in the provost's office for a couple of years and got pretty well educated as to what happens as, as certainly go through the process. So through your process, you'll, you'll be evaluated. When the process happens, you'll be evaluated by the department. They'll make a vote, by the way, when you're going through the process, you're supposed to get copies of everything. I had some very uncomfortable moments in rank and tenure committee meetings when we would bring the candidate in to interview with us. We would ask them about something that was in one of their ballots they were supposed to have gotten, and they never got it. And we would have some very uncomfortable moments at that point. So at each level of the process, at the departmental level, at the college level, and from the dean, and then the university committee, you're supposed to get a copy of whatever evaluation it is they send forward. And there are deadlines for that. And they have deadlines for that. Please, Mary. Please might say a different point. Yes. Let me go ahead. You might. Okay, actually, I'll finish my comment and then we'll come back to you. And the reason I say that is that I'm going to add you a little bit of insight. So all of that stuff, so that you, basically what that means is that you should have, at the time the provost gets what the provost is seeing, you have everything the provost is seeing because you have all of the committee evaluations, you have all of that. What the provost's office will do, and I think this is a good thing, and again, I'm not 100% certain of Dr. Boroff's procedures, but what good provosts that I know have done is they take all of that, plus, of course, they actually have, uh, you know, they probably will pull off if they're doing any, also any due diligence. You also have a right to see your official personnel file. They may pull that out as well, which they have a right to do. Um, and. Uh, and they will look at things in a very, very global context of the whole university because they have everything, the good ballots and not so good ballots. The ones that were written by the person that voted yes, they wrote a bunch of negative stuff on it. You'll get some really strange things on a few of the ballots too. Um, they will have all of that. And I know that our provost, at least the ones that I've worked with, uh, I work very closely with Dr. Robinson, and I know Dr. Boroff well enough, whether she'll be here next year, we don't know. I hope any provost that we do hire will do this, to do a very deep dive into the information that they're presented on their, you know, as part of their work. And Dr. Boroff, absolutely, I'm sure she is extremely diligent. And to do their diligence, and, that's, and I think that actually in the end works in your favor because one of the things about the committees, especially, is that the you know, current contender committees are great, they're full of good judgment, thoughtful people, but I don't know, Mary Ann, you're the psychology expert here. You put 11, 9 to 11 people in the room. Is there at least going to be one of them going to be off the wall about something to use colloquial? As my advisor says, yes. it's actually a compliment to you if you don't get the wackadoodle on your side, right? Yes. <laughs> you do, because we're worried about you. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's, again, there's always the... Right, you're the one. Right. There's, there's going to be some of that stuff. So coming back to having a dossier that's just so awesome that it really is a whack job that's voting, that the only first people that are voting against are whack jobs. 
And then the provost doing a deep dive that understands that the only people who voted against live jobs. I think that's the best way to help that, you know, to help it be smooth for you. And then here's what the provost has to do. And this is also, this is a little unique to Seton Hall. As we said at the beginning, it's affirmative vote of the Board of Regents. And what the provost will do is go to what's called the Academic Affairs Committee. And Judith has been there, Mary has been there. Peter, I think you've you had a presentative event yet? Oh, yes, I have. You have. Yes, I have. So the Academic Affairs Committee is very active, and they're very interested in things. And again, you all didn't, most of you didn't get to know, you know, some of you got to know Provost Robinson, and I experienced this directly. Provost Robinson was one of these people who would never slide. I never wanted to play poker with his house. He would never, his bearing, no matter how mad he was at something, his demeanor would never change. How pathetic got him to get back. <laughs> well, he had these slightly tinted glasses, but he couldn't always tell what his eyes were doing. So, the very, one of the very few times I would ever see Provost Robinson actually sweat in an interaction would be they would meet an executive session to talk about the rank and tenure candidates coming out of that executive session. Because what our board will do, which is somewhat unique among governing boards, is they will grill the provost about these candidates. In fact, at one point they wanted to see the whole dossiers and try to micromanage. And he refused. He threatened to quit. Mm -hmm. Well, the provost's job here yeah. is, is to make sure yeah. that the board yeah. acts upon exactly. academic judgment and doesn't exercise it, right? Exactly. So that's a little bit unique to go, because most of the time the governing board is a rubber stamp of the provost. The provost said this movement's done, not here. So that's actually one of the things that, that we kind of look for uh, as evaluators is I would advise when I was committee chair, make sure when you vote yes, don't just write you know, exceeding the standards. Give us a paragraph because the provost is going to need those sound bites to go to the board you know, in, the, in the document that they have to provide to the, uh, to the board because our board will be very active. They will ask questions and the provost needs that ammunition. So I that's just a little never, insight into the process. I have never heard of the board not supporting the provost's recommendation. I've never heard, but I've heard, but it has, it, it, it has gotten very terse. Well, and of course, the provost <laughs> makes recommendations anticipating right. the, the, the board. So, so that's that's a big factor in what the provost decides to do is whether he or she thinks yeah. he or she can make a compelling case yeah. to the board. Right. If the provost thinks he or she is going to be in a difficult spot, then that gives cause yeah. for... Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So that's a little bit of what happens in the secret parts that none of us ever get to see. And that's what, what goes on up there. And I, I found myself assisting the provost with the, uh, and I don't you know, Larry called upon some of our senior members of his office who have been faculty to, uh, to assist him in you know, preparing data for those uh, evaluations. But then he also would read the things very diligently himself cover to cover. And that's something, he, something we're not always impressed about by the provost job, but imagine being one person and having, well, it used to be a room full of them. Of, of all these dossiers to look at them, and, and they do read them. I want to make sure we get the oh, yeah, Absolutely, please. So yes. that is the, the guaranteed, uh, the other piece you want to make sure is in your application and um, that you can articulate well is your ability to not just 
you know, be a good researcher, be a good teacher, be a good service, but to support the Catholic mission of the institution. And I really encourage, we have these university seminars on mission every semester. Um, they're a great way. I can tell you with someone, you know, uh, who showed up here, like, I knew how to go to mass, but I didn't know anything. I was a saint. right? I knew less than you. Yeah, right. A lot less than you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I learned a ton for these. And so it's really good for that, helping you. I, you know, I firmly believe that this is, you don't need to be Catholic to embrace the Catholic mission at all. You know, my favorite part is that every person has value, right? That can really fit into your teaching statement well. It's, you know, the search for truth fits into your research statement. So be well-versed in that. The other thing that's nice about those seminars on mission um, is that you meet people from all over campus, that some of whom might be on this committee, right? So if you can't totally jazz yourself up to read next quarter by itself, uh, do it because it will also be helpful um, uh, for creating your packet. You'll surely get that question uh, probably at the college level, but assuredly at the university level. And that's also part, I assume, being a part of what the provost needs to convince is that, you know, not only is this person a good scholar, but they are a good scholar here uh, under this. Uh, and it's strength, it's strength in your application it's really in really significant ways, uh, even if, maybe especially if you're not Catholic, because the fact that you've taken the time to think about the issues and to engage with the mission without it being something that, without something you brought up just to be with from, from the trail. <laughs> um, so all, all of that um, can, can very much work in your favor and take an application that might be strong and make it really, really powerful. Also, would be one, uh, yep. one kind of closing story related to that. About, again, about, I want to say about almost 15 years ago, one of the first times I served on the Ranking Tenure Committee, um, one of our one of our very well known Monsignors, Monsignor Liddy, was one of the committee members, uh, and Monsignor Liddy would just ask the candidates flat out when they came in, why? Of course, there he would be in his uh, in, in, in his uniform, and he would ask them and kind of showing off a little bit to them and posturing a little bit, and he would ask them why here, and he was expecting at least a reasonably intelligent answer as to why here relating, of course, from his context to our mission. I mention that because, you know, thanks Mary Ann for mentioning the mission seminar. One of my roles on campus is I'm actually now a gem teaching fellow in the practice of the university seminar and mission, kind of up to the, I guess, the top level of that. I'm not a Catholic. I had no idea even what the Catholic Church hardly was before I came here. Um, and, um, and one of the things I feel I probably could do now, having had that training, is talk some things about the Catholic intellectual tradition. In fact, I was proud enough to give a presentation to, to the most recent cohort in the practice that Marianne is in, and I hope I didn't box it too bad. But to be able to stand up in front of that and have that conversation, a very good, for yourself, actually a very transformative experience. My thoughts on that actually started, and, and my whole project in that, actually, I came back and related to that, to that question I heard Monsignor Liddy asking in the Rank and Tenure Committee. You know, why here? And that's, I think it's, it's a great piece of narrative to be able to work into your story here. And as a closing, that's one of the things when you think about it. When I came up for tenure, I dean at the time, James Van Osting, of a philosopher dean. Actually, you don't get that a lot of J.D. That's what I've heard. And, uh, and uh, he's uh, very much a philosopher dean. And what J.D.O. told me about my rankings, he said, I read your dossier, Nick, and he said, what a wonderful story of a faculty life. And that's really what I think. If you've got a great, uh, tell a story of your faculty life 
and, and have it be a great story in that dossier. And, and I think the, and the committee mentioned if you can work hard on that and make that come across to the committee, that's one of the best ways to present yourself, I think, is to really tell, that, tell it as a story. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so. Sorry. Pragmatically, yeah, that's you got to that's right. so pragmatically, and as somebody who's served on the college committee more than once, um, and I've just heard this comment in fact from the provost. Make sure it's organized, clearly organized. As an English person, I can tell you, make sure it's well written. I, I lose, um, I lose real um, uh, sort of um, regard for people who can't use spell-check and grammar-check and realize that those little red sticky lines actually mean something, um, they should be spelled correctly. It should be well-written. Send it to someone in the English department. We will be happy <laughs> to help you with this. Um, or an English professor you know. Or some, I, this is why I married my husband. He's a marvelous editor. Um, <laughs> Among them. But anyway, so, but I have to tell you, it's surprising how really, really smart people will present, I'm telling you, a sloppy package is automatically going to lower you in the, in the eyes of people reading this because they're not going to think you take it seriously. They're not going to think you put time and attention into it. I know this seems mundane, but honestly, you can work really hard to get there. And yeah, I've been surprised over the years, Nick and I have served a bunch of times together that it really, uh, and especially, frankly, I've seen the worst ones in people going up for full. Not so much in people going up for associate, but at the full level, where you're like, uh, I'm sorry, you really needed to, to you know, pull out the spots a little bit more for this and show me a little bit more. But you cared enough not to knock this out just the last weekend, maybe. Anyway, but those little things, and so I agree with what we said, send it to somebody, uh, send it to people outside your area to get feedback. People who have also come up, especially not that long ago, um, most faculty are very, very willing. So, so one thing actually, I'm one of the things I actually still have on my bookshelf is uh, because now it's of course all online. And I think I, I just I, I forgot to bring it as a prop, and again, it seems a little quaint and outdated, but I still have the binder that I submitted to full professor on my bookshelf in my office, and I think Mary and some of us do. The reason I suggest maybe you again, if you want to see it, if you want to see it, come on by, or, uh, you know, drop me a note, come on by, because one of the things that's hard to do is actually see what an organized thing looks like in an online file, yes. in a computer file, but and. Really simple organization. What I actually all I did, and this was on paper, I just got a bunch of numbered tabs, and then as I mentioned something in the in the narrative part, I said see tab three. Boom. Yeah. Keep it simple and, and really really simple organization. Actually, a couple of other practical things. Um, the university rank and tenure committee members will be reviewing the dossiers probably over Christmas break at home. Some of us have slow internet connections. So try to keep your file sizes relatively small because somebody uploaded their whole dossier in one file and it was 130 megabytes and it took a half an hour on my DSL line at the time to download and I was getting mad. And that doesn't, it doesn't help them. Well, you know, don't let them unhappy when they're reading this video. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
I think the important thing about the right, entire process is you need to go all in. And you need, you know, you need to, if you're anxious about something, that's usually a sign you should be thinking about. And I think when people run away from their anxiety about something like this, and when they, when they don't struggle with the way a reader is going to respond to it, or the way it's going to look to a committee, they, they end up being sloppy, I think not so much out of laziness as out of um, self-doubt and anxiety. And I think, that, I think you, have to, you have to shake that when you go into this. You have to have enough confidence in yourself um, to, to put yourself out there and, and, and be judged. Um, and, um, and put your best foot forward with the knowledge that, that um, you may not be successful, but you, if, if you're not going to be successful, it's best that you actually gave it all you could. And I think, so I think, I think we can be self-defeating as academics in odd ways. And I think you need to, you, you need to shake that before you, you go into the process. So, so we're heading up actually almost to our, to our scheduled closing time. I just want to offer a little bit of opportunity for those folks that are still here and network and shake hands and talk a little bit among yourselves. So we'll go ahead and...